Welcome to another message from C3 Mumbai. For more information about C3 Mumbai, please visit our website c3mumbai.com or visit our Facebook page. Grace changes everything. Um, this word grace, it's, it's so much more than just a word. And if you try and define it to just one sentence about, you know, it, it's something that we don't deserve. It's a, it's a gift that, you know, unmerited favor. And you can hear it's a gift given to God, given by God. Uh, and there's so many definitions you can, you can come to understand. Um, in, your, in your life here, maybe if you've been coming for a while, or if you've heard, if you're outside of the community, but you still hear this word grace a lot and you're trying to grapple with it. Well, to be honest, this word is better understood when it is experienced. That's what I've come to understand in, in walking with Christ, is the experience of grace that is so real. It's not just through a doctrine, but it's through a person. Today we're going to talk a little bit about grace. And to best understand this, we're going to read from the passage of Luke. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. And I'm going to read. Just stay with me. If your partner falls asleep, just give them a little pinch. Um, it's allowed. All for God. Um, Let's start with verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. What a cheeky guy. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Some of us are saying he deserves it. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him his field, in, to send him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that, uh, with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, his father, I have sinned against you and against you. And I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. These guys knew how to dress. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. 
When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. How many of us have read this story, heard of this story before? Let me see. Yeah. We've all at some point, you know, even if, we, if this is our first time, we've heard about the son. You know, the term prodigal that we keep hearing of. It was made famous through the story about a prodigal son. We have two sons in this story, and we often focus on this prodigal son, okay? And he was what I would call the wild explorer, okay? He was, he was the crazy guy. He was the guy who would probably come to Bombay when he took his father's wealth, come to this city. He would be that kind of guy, okay? He's the guy that would come here to have fun. He's the guy that would come here to squander everything. He's, he would come here to show off. And that's, that's the, the younger son, who went to his dad and said, hey, do you know that to ask of your inheritance while your dad was still alive was to deem him dead? To go and ask of your inheritance while your dad was still alive was to deem him dead. So when he asked of his inheritance, he basically said to his dad, you're dead to me. Now can I have the money? So there's the wild explorer and then we have the older son who I'm calling the stable moralist. He's the, the, the good guy, you know, the guy who, you know, ties his dad's shoes and hands him the newspaper and, you know, there's no mention of the mother, so he probably took on the role of, you know, caring and nurturing and looked after his dad, made sure his affairs were in order, you know, made sure that he was always there for him to lean on. He was the guy that every, had all, you know, his, his plans neatly lined up. And then we have these two sons, one what we would call the wild explorer who was very bad. And then we have the stable moralist who we could call very good. I know some of you are smiling because you're like, yep, that's my family and I'm the older one and I have a sister who's just like that. And I know this, reading this story, we always look because this story, it feels like it's magnified upon what the little boy did and how he squandered everything. It feels like the story is focused on him. But we got to understand the context of this story was Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. He was talking to the people who were like the older brother, had everything good in their life, have done the right things, have been there, have made sure they dot every I's and cross every T's. And he's talking to them about this story. So there's more to it than just the younger wild explorer. 
In this story, it's amazing to see that there's a father and these two sons. And if at, at one glance, if you read this, you can think, well, we clearly know who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. But the crazy news in all this, both actually missed the point. Tim Keller has this amazing book called The Prodigal God. If you've not read it, you know, I would, I would really encourage everyone to get a hand on it. And he says this in his book. He says, neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message to most. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Wow. And all the churchgoers that have been here a while are a bit shocked by this. I was shocked too. Does this mean what it means? Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God? Hang on, what does that even mean? It means that sometimes in doing the right things, our motives might actually be selfishly aligned. That we could look the perfect part, we could come to church and praise the Lord, we're good. Yes, life's great by the grace of God. We use that term so lightly. How are you? I must mention it's the grace of God. At least I'm not taking credit for it. It's so much deeper than that. <laughs> you know, and you think just by adding that little statement, you know, oh, I'm being so broken about my struggle because if it wasn't for the grace of God. And while that's true, how much of the other stuff are you hiding? Because you've learned how to just cover yourself really well. And then we come to the father. And what did the father do in this story? You know, in those days, uh, that culture, the Middle Eastern culture, as we've been talking, Ryan's been talking about, you know, the freedom and talking about the book of Ephesians and the people of Ephesus and how it resembles so much of our culture today. And then, so, you know, in those days, the, the fathers wore these beautiful long robes. And as a father... Your duty was a protector and a provider, and the mother was the nurturer. It was a very traditional culture of this is exactly what my role is. It was divided straight down the line. And so for a father, it said when he saw the son a long way off, for him to pick his robe up and run was against all culture. You did not see that happen. So he broke all barriers. He picked his robe up and he ran towards his son. And it said he embraced him. You know, before, the, just imagine being the wild explorer. Okay? I can imagine it for times in my life where I did go down that path. Not as, I think I was more of the older brother. I still am more of the older brother than I am the wild explorer. But I had moments of, you know, being a pastor's kid. Like, you know, I had, I won't mention some partners in, in this church who were with me in those days. Uh, <laughs> plotting crimes together. But um, I remember that in those moments of understanding who I was, you know, when you've done something wrong and you come back, you almost don't know. Guilt is 
just so overpowering. I, I, would, I couldn't even imagine what this younger son was feeling as he was coming home. He must have gone over the script over and over in his head. This is how I'm going to play it up. First comes the introduction. First, actually, I need to apologize. I need to tell him that, you know, I was so wrong. And then after that, when his heart is softer, then I'll kind of put it down to maybe, you know, you could keep me on the outskirts. And then if I see he's, you know, then I'll ask him if I could stay you know, so he must have planned this whole script and it said the father saw him and embraced him. He didn't give him an opportunity to explain himself, to say his sorry. The father just embraced him. And as a younger son, to not be known by his faults, to not be known by what he had done, to not be known by the crimes he had committed, to not be known by everything he did against his father must have been the most humbling and yet closest moment of his life with his father. And it said he gave him the best robe. And you know the best robe in that home would have probably been the father's robe. So he gave him his own robe to cover this younger man's filth, to cover the, probably the smell of working with the pigs, probably even the shame of his own heart. He took his own robe off. He gave him the best to this younger son. It cost the father everything. It cost him everything. In those days, it's very much like our culture. You know, you don't show shame. You don't show weakness. You don't show when you're going through a, a bad time. You keep face. And so for a father, the whole town would have known that this father was dead to the younger son and to then embrace this son back would have been such a shameful thing to think of all the consequences what the explanations he had to do all the excuses he had to make up and everything but he didn't care he just embraced him it cost the father everything and someone paid for it you know in this story it gives us a good picture of what grace is not before it defines grace. You know, grace is not irreligion. It's not what this younger boy did. Grace doesn't allow you to do what this younger boy did and say, okay, all in the name of grace, I can do what I want. I don't have to care what people think about me. I don't have to care about my parents. I don't really have to care about anyone. I'm going to live this wildly explorer life. And I don't have to think about, that is not grace. Grace is not licentiousness. Grace is not, oh, because God's grace is sufficient and his grace is enough, I can do whatever I want. That is not grace. And grace is not even legalism. It's not religion. It's not going to God with a list saying, look what I have done for you, God. Look at all the good things in my life. Look at how I feed the poor. Look at how I read my Bible. Look at how I pray every day. This surely should earn some brownie points. I mean, surely you're looking down on me and thinking, wow, you're just such a good and faithful servant. That scripture was made for me. I was in his mind when he was thinking of that scripture. And we go to God with all these accolades of all the things we have done. And sometimes it's not even in the big things. It's how we talk in our conversation. I'm so guilty of this. 
You know, as a pastor, the number one trump card we can pull when things aren't going well is, God, I gave up my life for you. And it's something that while it may be true, we miss the point of the Father if we use religion as a way to get grace. So what is the gospel of grace? You know, in this story, it talks about the older brother. It talks about the elder brother of how, you know, in the last few verses, Rochelle, if you could just put up that in verse um, 30, 31, 32. It says, My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and, he, and now is found. And you know, you would think that the older brother should have been happy. You would think that their family, at the end of the day, their family, he should have been excited. He should have been happy that his brother who was lost came home. On the other hand, you would think, there was no way I'm going to be welcoming when my brother has literally ripped off my father's inheritance. It says in verse 4, uh, earlier on, it says that he split. He split the inheritance between them. That means now whatever was left, the father had split all his, all his inheritance. So what was left was actually the older brother's. The father didn't even have anything to his name. He had actually put it all in the older brother's name. So here is a guy who realizes that his younger brother has now blown up everything and all that's left is mine. And now he's come home, he's wasted his, and now he's come home to milk off my inheritance. So that would get some people upset. I would. I would, I would be entitled towards God. I would, maybe, maybe you know, because you're the older brother, you don't show emotion. Maybe, <laughs> you know, you don't, you still have to project inside and be like, man, there's no way he's getting any of this. But outside, I would just, you know, kind of play the part and wait and make him pay for it. You know, there's so many ways we could have handled this as the older brother. But the gospel of grace needed an older brother the gospel of grace needed an older brother to share everything he had with the one who didn't. And the father, because of his love for both his children, decided to send the perfect older brother on our behalf. And his name is Jesus. He was the older brother that we actually needed in this story. We needed this older brother to run out there and embrace him. We needed this older brother to go out and look for this man. We needed an older brother to, to not be able to sleep until his lost brother came home. We needed this older brother to stand in the gap and not accept 
that one of his own blood, his flesh and blood has taken it and gone away and this has nothing to do with me and become indifferent. And so God had to send a perfect older brother on our behalf. And how does this apply? How does this allow us? How does Jesus coming as an older brother, how does this grace through Jesus allow us to be ourselves when we know that we could have either been for most of our lives, if you've been a part of church, you know you probably came in as the younger brother at some point. You know, oh, my first love, I remember that service, and you know, God hit me, and I was so broken. And as time goes on, you kind of move along, and you become the older brother. And then you start looking over your back, and you start pointing out all the sins of the younger brothers that have come in. Or you get impatient with their progress and, and you're so bothered about, you know, how much their behavior needs to change and how much the outward appearance needs to change and how you get angry. You forgot the time when you took everything and left his house and he embraced you. He saw you from a distance and took you home. He came and put his ring on your finger. He came and put his robe over you. It's so easy for us to forget where God rescued us from. But that is grace. We can only give grace when we receive it. We can only give grace when we know what we've been rescued from. And as a community, as we start to dwell on this whole idea that if grace changes everything, what can I do differently today? Who have I been putting pressure on to, to, you know, to change the external, to make sure the behavior is in line with the church, with the code of conduct, the rules that we put? We forget the person that just needs to experience the grace of Jesus. And if our community is not built on this, we will have people coming and going. It needs to be one where people can be unafraid to be the older brother, to come home and be waiting with open, open arms and big hearts, ready to embrace them. How does it allow us to be ourselves? Come with me to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 10. And Paul, I mean, if anyone could boast, it's Paul. I mean, seriously, that guy was a nut. He, he was just a genius. You know, he wrote most of the New Testament. And then he, he brings this scripture. And he said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, how many of us like to lead from this place of weakness? It's really hard. It's hard to allow grace to change you. Because when you know grace is changing you, you stop caring so much about how you look and what people think of you. Image starts to wear off. Shame starts to take a back seat. And you start to just become real. And you 
boast not in what you have done and what you have overcome, but about your weakness and how his strength was made perfect in that. You know, we don't need too many teachers that sit up here, out there in the world and point fingers and show us how to live the best life. We need fathers and mothers that take a thumb and look at ourselves and point it back on us. We need a community that is willing to see their own junk before we take the speck in someone else's, you know, take out the speck in someone else's eye. We need to see the log in our own. We need to be willing to be broken. I know Ryan's been saying of late, like, you know, we need to be people that lead with brokenness. We're not here to put on a show. There's this thing about grace is that we cannot take credit for it. Grace should only point us to Jesus. And so if I'm here and I'm taking the credit for what God has done, I'm pointing you to myself. We need a community that points each other to Jesus. And the only way that we can be that community is share our weakness with one another. Ask for prayer like Hari was saying. And not just ask for prayer. Actually talk about the stuff. Sit down. Weep with them. Cry with them. Laugh with them. Celebrate with them. Do life together. Because we, we, we don't need paternal point, finger pointing. That's not grace. That's being like the older brother saying, I've made it. Now it's your turn. You know, we, have, we talked about Paul and Isaiah in the Old Testament. If you're here for the first time, Isaiah was this dude. He was this old school prophet. There were like few good prophets and Isaiah was one of them. Isaiah was quite accomplished. He was like the oracle of that time. You know, if you want to go deep, if you love poetry, if you love meat, Isaiah is such a good book to read. He was the mouthpiece of that time. And God knew everything about Isaiah. God knew what Isaiah needed. God knew what would shake Isaiah. And in verse 6, chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, the angels that guarded the ark, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. This is such a beautiful picture of God's grace to a guy who was much like the older brother, the oracle of his time, a prophet to the nations. And God knew how to wreck him. The very thing that made Isaiah, the mouth that made him the oracle of that time, God touched that very thing that he could boast about. Sometimes in our lives, the things we talk a lot about 
And it could be some things we boast about or some things we're just down about all the time. Both reflect something that is unhealthy that we're holding on to and not allowing grace to penetrate. For Isaiah, a man who was the prophet of God, the spokesperson of God, God touching his lips. And it says, just see the progression of the grace of God. It says, first he saw with his eyes. He saw the king. Then his lips were touched. Then his guilt was taken away. And after that, the obedience. Who I am? Who am I? God, would you use me? The touch of God to the very thing that needed grace was a progression of how God wants to minister in our own lives. He might put his hand on something that you're holding so close to, something you're so down about, something you just can't overcome, and he's there putting his finger on that. But he doesn't do it without showing himself first. He doesn't do it without allowing us to see him. You know, in church, we've got it the wrong way around sometimes, just sometimes, not always. We want people to come in. We want their behavior to change. And then we want them to believe and, uh, you know, obey. Uh, we, and then we want them to believe the gospel. But it's not like that over here. It says he, he first saw, he experienced grace, and that led to obedience. You know, we don't need behavior modification. Grace is not about that. Grace is about seeing our weakness and seeing his strength made perfect in that moment. That God would use a man like Isaiah. He was a very proud man because of what he needed. And God knew that it was almost like he had to shake Isaiah's pride by startling him. In the book, you know, the prophet of Jeremiah, it was the opposite. He was this prophet that was always so scared. So God had to just encourage him to do what he did. But for Isaiah, he needed to be humbled. God knows exactly what we need and when we need it. And if we allow grace to manifest itself in us, it will give us exactly what you need. For his grace is sufficient for tomorrow and sometimes if we're living in this place of I'm I'm just not at peace I'm always restless I do not have joy I can't seem to shake this off well which part of your life do you need allow to allow grace to penetrate because God wants to touch that very thing which when he puts his hand on it that will turn around into obedience because you get to know the goodness the beauty, the splendor of this God where it's not about what we can get from him. It's about getting to him. Grace is not what we can get from God. It's getting God. How can we, how can we apply this? How can we as a community apply this, this concept, this doctrine, this person that is... It's so mag magnificent, it's so big, it's so ginormous. How do we begin? The first thing I did this week was actually just reflect on my own life. The first thing is just simply reflection. God, what in my life right now 
needs your grace. For some of you, you could be that younger brother. For some of you, you've just abused grace, where you've not understood grace, you know. People that abuse grace don't really understand it both ways. You know, when you come into a church and people are trying to tell you how to live your life before you even meet Christ, that's actually the misuse of grace. So which area in your own life right now you know needs a turning away from? It says the younger brother came to his senses and went back to the father's home. Which part of your own life do you need to turn around from in reflecting of the Father's goodness for you, just knowing that if you have a picture of that Father waiting for you with his arms wide open and the access that you need to get to him is already paid for, there's a clear path. You don't have to beg. You don't have to go and try and pay penance for all the wrong things you've done. The elder brother has already done it. He cleared the path in Jesus. He made that way for you where you can just run to him as you are. You don't need to try and get everything in line before you go back to the Father. Which area of your life right now needs turning away from? Just running to him. You know, saying grace can only abound when we understand that we have sin in our lives. If we don't, we don't need grace, then we won't experience grace. And the only way we need grace is acknowledging how much we need him. And what in our world is taking us down a path that we do not need to go down? What in our world is a path we need to reflect and come back to God? In that same book, Prodigal God, it says, I'm more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, but I'm more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. After reflection, it's just dependability towards God. To get the gospel is to turn away from self-justification and rely on Jesus. The irreligious, what I talked about, the wild explorer, well, they just don't repent at all. And the religious, they repent, but only of their, their sins. You know, because you know all the things you have to do. But someone who understands grace also repents of their own righteousness. Someone who understands grace doesn't just repent of their sins, but also what they think they're doing right in order to get to God. That is a person whose understanding of grace is humbling and allowing. It's not just, God, I messed up. So you know what? Hey, I'm supposed to repent because that's a Christian thing to do. That's what we elder brothers do. Oh, God, I'm just going to repent. Let's just repent, repent. But so often, we're using the things that we're good at to actually buy our own righteousness. And both Cases where we completely don't care and we care too much, we've missed the grace of God. 
So dependability towards God is going to God saying, God, I'm even repenting of my own righteousness, the kingdom that I've built to show you, look how good I am, God. Because that is also, it amounts to, the scripture says, like filthy rags. And when we understand that grace needs dependability towards him and not away from him, not focusing on the good works that we've done, we realize that the grace that God has given us can now be available for people in a community like this as we talk about the core values. You know, grace can't stop with us. Grace, it's fluid. It wants to get into places. It wants to flow out of you. Grace is not a monument that you build to show that, hey, look, I was once saved and now I don't need saving. Grace is a movement of the Spirit of God that flows not just in us but through us into the community and out of this community onto the streets of Mumbai, into this nation, into the nations of this world. This is the grace that we need. The flow of the Spirit of God that goes everything I now have received, I'm now going to give. Because everything I have done, my sins, put that elder brother Jesus on the cross. He paid for what I should have paid. He came and took every little decision I made that was wrong and took upon that cross so that now I can be seated with him. And when that thought, and it allows us to, to go through the depths of our mind, and when we understand grace, we cannot stop it with ourselves. It's a community that understands grace that is real community. Because we never want to fall into performance or pretending. We have enough of those around us. We don't want to be a community that goes after the things to look right and make sure we have everything in place. And just be aware. Be aware in those moments when you've overcome stuff when you've when you've now done the journey for a while and you look back and go wow look how far I've come that you know that it's in your weakness that he was made strong because if you don't do that you may finish one thing and get so good at covering up the things that God really needs to work on in that grace can just become a performance you know I was I was trying to put this in one paragraph and I, I just wrote this down. I said, if grace changes everything in our community, we need to get over our love for reputation and image. It's easy to build our identities on how good we look. But if our community is to be changed by the grace of Jesus, others must regularly see grace working itself out healing our sins, our deepest wounds and fears, and our strength being made perfect in our weakness. I just want us for a minute, you know, as we think about the, the Father, as we think about the Son, as we think about, you know, the grace we don't deserve and how it plays out in our own life and how we can seem together 
you know. And how it's easy when you seem together to not ask for help. It's easy when things are going well for you to start boasting in your own overcoming. It's easy to slip into those patterns of, look what I've done. But imagine the kind of community we can have. If we have a community that is based on grace, the kind of humility we would have, the confidence we would have, simply means that there's nothing I can do to make God love me more and there's nothing I can do to make God love me less because it's his grace that paid the price. So I don't know if you've had a really rough past or if you are in it right now or if you've begun to experience the grace of this God. I don't know where you're at. But there's nothing that you can do that will allow God to love you less. Because it's not yours to pay for. The price was too high. And only one person could pay for it. It means that even I, who deserve the opposite, of what I sometimes act or who I act like. I am invited to take the place at God's table and have a meal with him, no matter what I deserve. Because it's not about our deserving. It is about his fulfilling. What really can bind this community together, it's not common interest. It's not likes and dislikes. It's not nationality. It's not your income. It's not your jobs. It's not how, where you're placed in society. It's not how good you're doing. It's not what you've done. A common interest of this community, a common centeredness of what brings us back is the grace of Jesus. And that's what needs to center this community. So that we can love each other freely. We can accept each other's weaknesses. We can have patience with those who are struggling. We can go to someone we do not like at all and spend time with them and listen to them. We can walk across the room to someone we would normally ignore and allow for real community to take place because it's, that's what we've been given. It breaks all barriers. It breaks all understanding. It's something that is not merely a doctrine, but something to be experienced. C3 Mumbai is a church in the heart of India's commercial capital, where a diverse group of people brought together to worship God and to pass on the hope of salvation by grace that we freely received. For more information about C3 Mumbai, please visit our website c3mumbai.com or visit our Facebook page. Follow us on Instagram or tweet us on our handle at C3Mumbai.
Hey, it's Ryan here. If you enjoyed this message and you live in Mumbai, we would love to meet you in person. Why don't you come along 11.30 a.m. Studio 10 at Famous Studios in Mahalakshmi.